Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. Our climates are interconnected and often through the oceans. When we talk about ocean currents, they are things that animals can use to migrate all the way across the world, but they also tie together our ecosystems and our climates. This week, we're going to look at animal migrations, ocean currents, and the interconnected webs of our climates. And one of the big challenges of a changing climate is that our ecosystems are in a state of flux. Species are moving. They're trying to find a new niche to survive as their current niche changes, and those that stay behind are trying to adapt to the niche that they find themselves in. But if you're in an ocean, well, the ocean's sea levels are rising, they're also warming, and the ocean currents as a result are starting to change, especially in the way in which that they interact with the environments that they pass through. And what are you to do? Well, sometimes you just have to go with the flow and migrate to a new place. And that's what we're actually seeing. We're seeing a lot of marine organisms migrating towards the poles in search of colder water as the ocean temperature rises. And researchers from the Geozentrum Nordbayern at Friedrich Alexander Universität in Erlangen-Nürnberg have been looking into the way marine animals have migrated to look for warmer or colder waters over the geological history of the Earth. Because whilst the Earth's climate is changing right now, it's also been through some pretty dramatic changes in the past as well. And by studying the past and the fossil record of creatures that have migrated in the past, we get a great insight into what may happen in the future. Now, marine animals are in pretty much two camps. They either need warmer water for their metabolism, and this is pretty much a lot of the tropical species, things that also like thriving on plant species or coral that grow only in the tropics. Other ones depend on really high concentrations of oxygen in the water. And that's typically correlated with colder water. So some animals actually prefer the colder climes. And so what you see is you actually end species in clumps, some that hang out in the cold waters, others that hang out in the tropics. Whilst the climate is changing now rapidly and the oceans are warming, that means that if you like cold water, you've really got to make a beeline straight for the poles. But researchers at the Friedrich Alexander University in Erlangen and Nuremberg have been looking at the fossil record and what it tells us about creatures' behaviour in the past. Now, when we think about marine species, we think about fish or whales or other large migratory creatures, but even things like coral and mollusks and sponge have also been following the preferred cold and warm zones for around half a billion years. Isotherms is which what we call geographic lines denoting the same temperature. Let's say, for example, a constant temperature of 20 degrees. Now, these isotherms shift towards the poles or the equator as in correlation with the global temperature rise and decreased. Now, at the moment, the isotherms have been shifting towards the poles due to global warming. And this is, at the moment, having a huge impact on tropical species because a lot of them are actually already living close to the thermal maximum for a complex organism, which is about 35 to 45 degrees. Above that, it's very difficult for a complex organism to survive, or at least what we've seen so far on Earth. And that's driving a lot of complex creatures, marine animals, towards the poles. 
provided that you know obviously there's suitable habitats for them to migrate into there's no point saying you're going to move if there's nowhere for you to move to but we can chase these movements of the isotherms and we look at this through paleobiologists studying the prehistoric migration patterns first they determine the coordinates of an area where fossils were found when they were alive and then by using a model and looking at the tectonic plate shifts you can actually see how, since the time when the animals were living, combined with the resulting currents that existed at that time, you can get an idea of tracing the species migration over a very, very long period by tracking that same species type and where they were found later on. And they built a global database to help capture the locations as well as the model locations and predictions for that species for fossil records, all fossil records ever found. And that's incredible because we can actually see how species move and change position over time, moving from cold to warm and warm to cold as the Earth's climate changed in the past. Now this is great and gives us an insight into how species may cope now with the changes that they're going to face with a changing climate. And one of the big areas at risk is of course the tropical species who may run out of headroom or less warm areas for them to survive in because as the warm water gets even warmer, it might be too difficult for them to live in or at least not have enough time to adapt to. And that just puts more stress on the colder areas where species are already in tough competition for resources. There's some great research being done out of the University of Erlangen-Nürnberg into the historical behaviors and migrations of species in times of changing climate. comes to migrating in the ocean, the real MVP of this category has to be the whale shark. Now this mysterious species that we've spoken a lot about here is one that we're still struggling to understand. Now we don't really have a good fix on the population of whale sharks. We don't know where they go when they breed. We also don't know where bachelor, young, adult whale shark males go and hang out. But we're slowly, by studying and tracking them using a couple of different programs, including very sophisticated ones, crowdsourcing information or photos from people, as well as using NASA satellites to track them, which is what we've talked about here in the past on the Grange Point. It's very difficult to actually track these creatures. But a recent paper published in Marine Biodiversity Records using researchers from the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute have tracked a whale shark that has made an incredibly complicated and significant journey. Now we know that there's a couple of primary areas where whale sharks hang out. Often they're usually found in warm tropical or subtropical waters. Now that means generally about three quarters of them live in the Indian Ocean, Pacific Ocean areas. And sites like Amman, Australia, Galapagos, Mexico, Mozambique and the Seychelles. But there's been reports of large groups of whale sharks and everywhere from the South China Sea to the Gujarat coast of India, and even maybe about a quarter of them hanging out for some reason in the Atlantic, which is not really tropical, or at least in most places. But this team of researchers from the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute have tracked a whale shark, a female whale shark of the type Rhinocodon typus, from an island near Panama, the, the basically one of the largest islands of the coast of Central America, which is also a marine conservation area. They've tracked it all the way from there 
down through the Galapagos all the way to near Guam in the Western Pacific, the Marianas Trench. And the Marianas Trench is a pretty spectacular place because that's one of the deepest points on the Earth's surface. It goes down 11,000 meters below sea level. Now, whale sharks can only dive, at least as far as we know, to about 1,900 metres. So we're not sure why the whale shark was at the Marianas Trench, but that's where it ended up. And this journey consisted of around 20,000 kilometres, all the way from the Pacific, all the way to the Indo-Pacific, and, and, and then continuing on. And that's pretty much incredible. It's the longest whale shark migration route ever recorded. As I said, we don't know very much about these creatures. We don't know if that's typical or not because they're so hard to find and study. In fact, the researchers lost track of the whale shark for a good period of uh, 235 days because it disappeared from out in the Galapagos and then reappeared in Hawaii, just to give you an idea of how hard it is to track these things. Now, it's pretty incredible to think about how much these creatures swim and migrate. Large females can swim around 67 kilometers a day and that is a huge route for any fish really to th when you think about it and it's basically as we've talked about before a large filter feeding shark that feeds on plankton much like a whale but it's not a mammal so it's not a whale per se but it's very similar in terms of its food mechanism and obviously its size and this goes to show how little we know about whale sharks and highlights the difficulty of tracking them where do they go what are they up to? What are their migration patterns? And how might these be changed by a changing climate? We really don't know. They are a protected species. And in the last 75 years, since we basically discovered them or formalized our discovery of them as a real species, we've really got to understand them. But we think still we've only scratched the surface and more work is needed. But this is some great research being done by the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute. It helps stretch our imaginations of the migration patterns of whale sharks that could be swimming everywhere and anywhere. recent years as we've built up some great models about how our earth behaves especially in times of a changing climate we've looked at the way ocean cycles including currents and airflow can actually change weather in one part of the globe to the other and it's gone to show just how linked we are by the oceans and how much of an influence it can have on our climates for example the large ocean cycle the switching over of currents from one pattern to the other in the pacific ocean can lead to mild winters in Canada, intense rains in South America, but drought in Australia. That's the El Nino phenomenon. And then El Nino oscillates between around two to seven years. It flips back to La Nina and goes the other way. Australia has lots of rain and South America is very dry and Canada is quite snowy. And that's just because of the way that the ocean currents helps change the water cycles and the weather that we see across the world 
And this large ocean cycle in the Pacific is not the only ocean cycle. There's other cycles as well. There's also the Pacific Decadal Oscillation, the PDO, which is basically a huge variation in surface water temperature, which calls also population changes in the fish living in these ecosystems. Because as the ocean currents and the ocean temperatures change, well, that also affects the species that live in them. That just makes sense. But researchers from Le Centre National de la Recherche Scientifique, which is a French research institute, have been looking at seabirds in particular to see how they are affected by large ocean cycles like the La Nina-El Nino pattern as well as the Pacific Decadal pattern. Now, the seabirds are actually a really interesting way to study the impact of these ocean changes, mostly because they're migratory, but they also consume resources like sardines, which get tremendously affected by changes in ocean temperature and current. Obviously, the birds are going to go where the fish go and if the fish are thriving. And so therefore, you actually get a good tracking or feedback point on the impact that these ocean current changes are having on the actual animals around them and the ecosystems. And there's been a lot of data gathered on this from between 1984 and 2012. The scientists looked at survival rate of young Nazca boobies, which is the type of bird, particularly around the Galapagos Islands. Now, since the bird has a life expectancy of about 15 years, it's pretty well matched for a long-term study like this. Now, the survival rate of these young birds during El Nino events is pretty low because the food stock, the sardines, aren't in the area. And also, they're not surviving well in the warmer waters at that time. When the pattern flips, the birds thrive, and you end up with a very, very large volume of the birds. It is interesting, though, to compare the El Nino-La Nina pattern of behavior and the impact it has on both the fish and the birds to the Pacific Decadal Oscillation, the PDO. And what happens in this cycle, which can take obviously a decade, in its warmer phases, you actually see an increased, a very high mortality rate amongst the birds. Now, this seems really, really unusual and counterintuitive. Why? Well, because even though the oceans are warmer and there's more sardines around, there's actually higher amounts of stress on the birds. There's a large amount of population, but the, the adults lose a lot more energy in this reproduction. There's less nest abandonment, and it's, they burn a lot more energy too, just trying to stay cool. The result is a much higher mortality rate. Conversely, when they, the colder phases of the PDO, you actually see an improved survival rate for the bird species because they can have less or more manageable number of of offspring and there's less nest abandonment they can recover from any difficulties very quickly and this is interesting to compare the differences between that and the el nino la nina pattern so we can learn a lot not only about the way in which our ecosystems and our countries and our climates are interconnected through ocean currents and ocean-based events like this we can also learn a lot about how the changes both on a small scanner and even longer scale can impact the species that thrive in those ecosystems this has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. From migratory seabirds to the mysterious whale sharks, even ocean currents can help tie our climates together and move ecosystems and animals and weather across the world, now and in the past too. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.